Um, hi, I'm Lee. I'm Roger. And this is More Games Than Time. And we've definitely had a lot more time <laughs> consumed with other things this month. But uh... but we managed to, to get together to record an episode somehow and even talk about some games we've just about been playing. And then we'll go on to uh, look at awards and top tens and top hundreds and, and other what, things what, we don't have time for. So, Roger, I've been playing Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the board game, which is not mm. to be confused with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the board game. Okay, I know somebody who's done a bit of writing for the RPG, so that's further confusion for <laughs> There was a game that came out in the early 2000s, which seems to be held in relatively high regard as far as a roller move game from the early 2000s can be held. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the 2016 game, which shares an identical name, which I don't know why they decided to use a lazy name that had already been used, but they did. Oh, who would be interested in a game from 10 years earlier? Well, obviously, that's completely forgotten. Exactly. It makes things easy to find when you're looking for things online. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's officially a 2016 game according to Board Game Geek, although I'm pretty certain it actually came out in the early part of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, it got relatively good reviews, but didn't really seem to get a lot of publicity. So it's almost going back to forgotten games, I suppose, we've been talking about in previous episodes. Um, but it must yeah. have sold well enough. I was expecting it to, you know, to be in all this online sales by the end of the year. It wasn't. Um, they've done, uh, an expansion. Which I mm-hmm. have, but which was never in any of the stores over here. It seemed to be a US only release. <laughs> the distribution has been shocking, frankly. Um, I haven't even told you how the game works yet, but they're meant to be doing another standalone game as well, um, based around Angel, the spin off Buffy series. Sure. Um, I don't know if that has a, a projected release date yet. I do know the characters from it are meant to be interchangeable, so you can play the characters from either game in either game. Makes sense. Um, so when the game came out, as I say, it was positively reviewed. One of the things I heard about it fairly often was that it was a sort of a, an Eldritch Horror light game. So basically cooperative, you're working together against the big nasty. Exactly, yeah. And I, I haven't played Eldritch Horror. I have played Arkham Horror, and I can see the similarities with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a, a board with various locations on it. Um, on your turn, you will move your avatar to one of those locations. You can do an action which is specific to that location, mm-hmm. or you can do a, a generic fight action, a generic search action, or you can activate your special ability. Sure. Um, and the basic aim of the game is to, as you say, you want ultimately you want to take down the big bad. Before you get to the big bad, you want to take down the, the monsters of the week. And presumably and, when, when you do this, you get rewards, you get tougher and so on, so you're more able to do the end game. No. No, okay. there's no levelling up at all. <laughs> um, the other thing that's going on is uh, you're sort of your low-level baddies, as it were, your vampires and your demons, which spawn regularly through the game. Um, so you're trying to sort of keep a, an element of board control mm-hmm. um, whilst defeating, the say, the monsters of the week and the, the, the big bads is what you're scaling to at the end of the game. Yeah. Um, 
It's a con- entirely card-driven game. So on your turn, you will do an action. If you do a special action, which is unique to your character, you will flip an event card, which will do three things. Um, mm-hmm. Two of those things will be either spawning a, uh, spawning a demon, spawning a, a vampire, or spawning a townie in a place who are, you know, who the vampires and the demons are after. Sure. Um, and the third thing will be a, a, a special event that might be you can't use a certain location for the rest of this round, or if there are two vampires sharing a location, split them up. If there's a character sharing a location with a, a vampire, then the character gets wounded, that kind of thing. Some sort of special tweak, anyway. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I so say you draw that event card when you carry out a special action. During a round, you can carry out four actions and you flip a tile to say that you've done this. Mm-hmm. One of those tiles is your special action. You can only do it once in the round. You can also flip your special action to do a regular action if you wish, but at some point you're going to have to flip that special action tile and something's going to happen on the board. Sure. So part of it is managing when that happens. The game kind of tries to scale. Um I can't remember if it goes up to four players or five or six, but it, you can technically play it as one as a one-player game. Okay. Um, the yeah, only concession so to playing it completely... Officially so, one to six. Yeah, a one to six, is it? Thank you. So the only con- concession to scaling is size hand. Size hand? Hand size. <laughs> <laughs> We're not recording this late at night. Um, yeah, in the solo game, you can have a hand of seven, seven cards in... Playing it two-player, you have four cards each. And if you're playing it anything more than that, it's three cards each. Mm-hmm. So just you have fewer, more or fewer options. Yeah, so I don't think... It, I, I've only played it solo. I've played it with one, two, three, and four characters. My preferred playing count is three to four characters. Mm-hmm. I think it probably is better as a solo game. And the reason I say that is because I can imagine... Um, so the way I play it, at least, controlling multiple characters, there will often be one character that stays in one place doing one thing every single turn. Sure. And if you were to do that as a group, I can see that being very boring. Oh, it's my turn is it again. Is it okay? Well, I'll do that thing I did last turn. Yeah, so you do. it's a thing that's... I'm, I'm guessing it's a thing that's useful to the game state. You do need somebody to be doing that, but the most efficient way is to have one person who just does nothing else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it does, I mean, that thing might change in different games. Um, I think in my last game I played, I, uh, I set um, Xander in the Buffy Summers, Summers residence. Um, at that location, you can remove two wounds from the wound track mm-hmm. as an action. So he just kept doing that all game. Um, because we're other people in effect so the wounds don't go specific to your character they go to a track okay. um yeah. and it's it's an interesting thing that so if, if it's i think it's called the hell track or it's got a specific name if this track fills up during the game then you lose that's the main way you're going to lose the game fair enough um if your character takes a wound it goes onto the onto the track if a townie is killed then the townie goes onto the track and, and helps fill it up and helps to fill it up. Wounds yeah. you can heal, townies you can't. If they're dead, they're dead. 
Um, although I think there are some modules um, that can sort of play around. They'll turn wounds into ta- into townies and other things that perhaps you can get a townie off. I can't remember. There's there's a lot of um, expansion modules within the game, diff- the ways that different things interact. Yeah. Um, another, quite often a game I play with Willow, who I think is an overpowered character in the game. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of the series, but from what I remember... Uh, some fans of the series might well agree with you. Yeah, so. well, basically what she does when I play with her is she sits in the magic shop casting using her special ability, basically, which wipes out loads of enemies in loads of different locations all across the board, which makes it quite easy to keep the board under control. Mm-hmm. Um, Without having to actually go there and fight them and so on. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Because if there is an enemy um, at a location, you can't use that location special ability. You have to deal with the enemy first. Yeah. Um, so the way that um, you control the low-level enemies, the demons and the, the vampires, you have to, to to fight normally. You stun them. You just flip the counter mm-hmm. over. At the end of the round, they'll reactivate again. If you have uh, a wooden stake, you can kill the vampires when you fight them. If you have mm-hmm. some weapons, then you can kill the demons when you fight them. So part of the, the hand management is having these items. That are useful in the game. Sure. Um, when it comes to monsters of the week, you will require you'll be required to have two specific items when you fight them. And when you do that, you flip over an event card. Now the event cards have a symbol at the bottom, and you're looking for one of the one. You're looking for one of two symbols to say yes, you were successful in this fight, and you can remove the monster of the week. But yeah, monster of the week. Okay. And I wouldn't be at all... I've, I've said this is a completely dice-free, card-driven game. I wouldn't be at all surprised if during early development and prototyping and everything else, actually this was done with a D6. Because yeah. there are three different symbols in the game. They're evenly distributed through the deck. So it's basically like rolling one to four. Yeah. And then at so, some point, somebody, somebody somebody said to them, oh, multi-use cards, they're a good idea. And then they put this symbol on the bottom of the card. And then we don't have to put in the dice, which themselves are cheap, but we then don't have a, have a place to store the dice in the box. And... Absolutely. And normally, as you know, I'm not a fan of dice. Um, I'm a fan of card-driven games. I'm a fan of multi-use cards. In this instance, I'm not convinced that it's actually a good decision. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, your odds of getting that symbol isn't two in three. Because it depends what cards have already been drawn from the deck. Sure. If you're and looking for a particular... And you didn't necessarily get the symbols because you draw the, drew the cards to do other things. Exactly. So if, you know, if you're getting towards, you know, you've got half a dozen cards left in the deck and none of the symbols are there, then you're not looking too good. Yeah. And and sometimes I've been in that situation where I know that the symbol isn't the deck. I've got to keep going through this motion of fighting the thing to draw a card. To You're just sort of kicking the wheels, trying to keep going round and keep alive until you can shuffle up the deck again. Sure. Um, yeah, which is which is frustrating. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you you could probably house rule it to just roll a d6 at that point. I think that wouldn't, you know, break the game in any way. Hmm. Um, once you have defeated a monster of the week, it puts a, a clue token in the space where you defeat it. Okay. Um, the big bad that you're fighting for, some of them will have effects that come into play when there is a clue token on the board. Okay. So you might want to pick up that clue token immediately as an action. Alternatively, it might not interact with the clue token at all. So you might want to leave it there. And the reason you might want to leave it there is because when you 
pick up the clue token, it reveals a plot. And the plot will start doing something on an ongoing basis, turn after turn. So there's sort okay. of either way, you know, your decision in the game will change game to game depending on who the, the big bad is um, and what their how their character works. And there, there was a variety of um, of these big bads in the game, and they do all work in very different ways, which is quite um, quite refreshing. Always good to see, yeah, yeah. And uh, thematically, they they do reflect the characters, the the big bads, the the sort of the series villains from the series. And the game itself does convey the the feeling of the IP well. I think it works really well. Mm. Um, the uh, as a, as a base game, I think it probably takes sort of 60 to 90 minutes to play. Mm-hmm. The expansion... Of, comparing things to Arkham Horror again, the expansion is an Arkham Horror expansion. And by that, I mean... Large or small. What it does, it adds more of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it adds another player... It adds another board that you put next to the existing player board you the monsters don't interact between the two boards they can't move between the two of them mm. but there are these are more locations Co- consequently it comes with more cards that you shuffle in more event cards more item cards as new types of item um there's also a new type of token not demons not vampires but soldiers who are trying to kill the demons if they kept if it will capture the demons, I should say. If they capture six, that's another way you can lose the game. The vampires will kill no, the, the soldiers. The sinister and, government conspiracy wants to yeah, weaponize exactly. demons. The vampires will kill the soldiers, and if they kill the soldiers, they go onto that track with the wounds and the townies. Mm-hmm. Um, however, they will also wound you if you get in the way. So you're trying to protect them but not get hurt by them. Um, it also adds a whole load of new characters, adds a whole load of new big bads, including Dark Willow and some of the other sort of later um, right. series villains. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a good expansion that just adds more of everything. But because it adds more of everything, it also changes a 60 to 90 minute game into a 90 to three hour game. Mm, and at that point, I at least find myself saying, well, yeah, but are there perhaps better shorter games I could be playing in the same time. Which is a completely reasonable question. And then, uh, yeah, obviously there's no reason you have to mix in everything from the expansion. You could just use some of the new characters or some of the new villains and ignore the sideboard and the soldiers. Sure. And it's um, interesting because I, I have played Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror, I think mm-hmm. most of those games at one time or another. And the thing that they all do to some extent to keep things going is definitely your powering up. You know, it's, it's the opposite of classic Call of Cthulhu play, because you you are getting more competent, more capable yeah. as you go along. And sounds sounds if you basically pretty much the same level through the game. You are, and I think that's you know possibly that's what lent people to, to describe it as as Eldritch Horror, Arkham Horror Light. Um, mm-hmm. There isn't any character leveling in the game at all. Um, it, I mean, that's but, having a stake or not, but. Yeah, exactly. You know, whether you've got items, um, you you can. One of the items is a a tomb, or to you and me, a book. Um, and you can at any point on your turn discard a tomb and draw an artifact, which is like a, a super powerful item, which will give you ongoing abilities. So you can kind sure. of level up in that way. Um, 
And you can, if your characters are in the same location, swap items and artifacts between them. Yeah. But if you started um, at fight three, you're always going to have fight three, as it were. Yeah, I mean, there isn't even any character stats in it. Mm-hmm. So fighters literally fight. You will stun one baddie in your location unless you okay, have the so, item so that will improve your, the... Yeah, you've got your unique power. Yeah, uh, unique powers is, is all it comes down to distinguishing between the characters, which is enough. Hmm. Um, so I, it, it rather than just being pure, um, pure arc and pure Eldritch Horror kind of thing, Perhaps I think it borrows quite a bit from something like Pandemic as well, where, again, your character doesn't change through the game. It has a unique ability. What will change through the game is the board is going to get more and more cluttered and the pressure is going to ramp up. Mm -hmm. So presumably it gets more difficult to move around, get to the place you need to get to, all that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's streamlined. It's quite a, a, a simple game. I mean, even something like, you know, movement between locations. you don't have a, we just said you don't have stats, you don't have a movement ability. If you choose to move, you can move to any location on the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I've had a look at a picture of the board and yeah, it's carefully, carefully laid out in the network, but uh, if that's the case, then it doesn't really matter as much. No, no. I mean, the, the, um, the, the, the demons and the vampires will move around between turns. So they, mm. so the, the distance between locations is important for them, but not for the players. Now, I don't know these designers, particularly Josh Jerkson, Thomas Gofton, Dan Huang, Aaron Murch, Cameron Parkinson. Uh, just looking through their uh, BGG stuff, you know, Terminator mm-hmm. Genesis, Rise of Resistance, Miniatures game, I've heard lots of vaguely good things about. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of Star Trek Alliance, um, which I've just never touched. So it's, uh... they, they, they've clearly done games, but they've done games mostly that I, I have never played. Yeah, it's uh, it's Lynn Vander Studios, I think, who at mm-hmm. one point were a publisher and released. Um, oh, I can't remember. They had a, a series of games on Kickstarter, which um, did get quite a bit of attention, but also got quite a bit of negative attention for their failure to deliver and those kind of things. Yeah. Um, at some point, about three or four years ago, they decided they weren't going to publish any games, and they are now just purely a design studio. Uh, with different publishers publishing right. their games. Yeah, so I see this is Gen X Games and Jasco Games as listed as the publishers. Jasco, I think maybe that's what I'm thinking of. I think Linvander is another publisher of Jasco Games. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, whichever way around it is, yeah, so it's a design studio um, published by somebody else. Uh, no, it is, it's it's not complex. Um, and we, we talk later in this episode um about the people's choice top 100 and i think the the year i first got the game which would have been 2017 um mm. i gave us an honorable mention um i i sort of mentioned in that that it's a, a fairly simple game um would it have the legs to stand up to a repeated place uh the following year it did get into my top 20 mm. because i was still playing it and i am still playing it now and i'm still having fun with it um you know mm. i'm not playing it every week every month anything else i'm up to probably around 20 plays which is pretty good yeah and i i haven't looked at your entire collection i i'm assuming it's it's same sort of size as mine of quite a few things and even if you played a different game every day it would take a while to get through them all yeah yeah and like um 
yeah, like probably several people listening to this podcast, my collection is bigger than I'd like it to be. <laughs> Embarrassing <laughs> levels. And that's despite, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at moving games on that I'm not playing. Sure. So that's uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the board game. Yeah. Bracket 2016. <laughs> uh, I've actually been playing another game from 2016. That is a media time. Star Trek Ascendancy. All right. Which is from the same designers as Firefly, the board game, which we mentioned in an earlier episode. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a 4X game set in the Star Trek universe. Okay. Well, I know you're a big Firefly fan, so how does this compare? Uh, I'm a fan of the game. Again, not not particularly a fan of the media. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't hate Star Trek, but I don't love it either. I've seen most of the shows at some point or another, but I don't go and rewatch them. Um, <laughs> I, was, I would say I, I would probably be just as happy with this if it weren't a licensed game, but it is mm-hmm. a convenient... Um, Means of entry. I mean, I think a lot of forex games with um, faction powers will have the faction that's basically about lots of battle and attacking all the time. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's called the Klingons, and most people know the sort of thing you say when you're playing the Klingons. You know, you talk, talk a lot about honor, and then then um, right. ra- ra- ram your fleets into the enemy fleets head on. Uh, <laughs> and you know. It, it's just that bit more accessible than, than say, Twilight Imperium. Mm-hmm. Is that um, accessible due to sort of foreknowledge of the IP or accessible due to the rules? I, I'm, I'm thinking just about the IP side of it here. Mm. It's mm, it's not super complex, but as uh, players of Firefly will know, the, these particular guys weren't always the best at writing unambiguous rules. And the the first thing I'll say, there's, there's a, uh, I, I would have rewritten the rules myself, as I have for some other games, including Firefly. But somebody on BGG has already done it. That saved uh, you a job. Yeah, so uh, Matthias' um, rules, uh, they're on the BGG files page. I'll link to them in the show notes, are absolutely recommended. Yes, it does mean you have a 100-page rule book, but, you do, but it's 100 pages because you can search to any bit of it you need mm-hmm. and just find immediately what you need to know. So highly recommended on that. But... Um, yeah, so it is a 4X game. One of the reasons I like it a lot is that it's the only 4X game I've played that takes the exploration very seriously. Right, okay. Uh, you, you start with a play area, uh, it might be sort of three foot square or 40 inch mm-hmm. circle or something like that, uh, with home worlds dotted around it. Right. And as you explore, um, you have warp lanes of var- varying length and mm-hmm. system disks that connect them. Okay. So. So is this uh, uh, is this completely freeform or is it hex based? Uh, it's freeform. Right. Okay. Uh, you you have to if if you've got a lane three, a uh, lane three warp lane uh, mm-hmm. that, that you're exploring down, then you have then you have to put the new system three away uh, at that distance. You've got a, right. a lane lane three cardboard piece. And how how does that setup work? Them. Are you are you required to put your starting point within a certain distance of other people's or can you say right i'm not i'm playing a completely solo game i'm not interested in extermination i'm going to put my point on the corner furthest away from everybody else uh, normally there is a setup and it's effectively um everybody around a circle right uh the thing is though you can pivot so mm-hmm. if, if yeah my home world is fixed uh the first system i explore to um the direction is not defined right I'll put it on the map, but I can keep I can move that around, and indeed, so can other people mm-hmm. to to make connections. And only once when someone's got two 
warp lanes connecting to a single system, is it fixed in place? Okay. Interesting. Uh, because as as you say, it is free form, and yeah. otherwise you might have problems that you know you never quite line up with the uh, mm. connections. As it is, that's a, well, a something I haven't really seen in other games, but b uh, some, something that really gets the feel of it's a big universe out there, and we just yeah. don't know what's in it. Yeah, that does sound interesting. Um, so, yeah, when you when you do that, you get the system disc, which mm, it'll tell you. Things like the, the sort of re, sort of uh, resources you can extract from it, mm-hmm. um, or sometimes you get a phenomenon with some sort of special effect. You also get an exploration card which will tell you what's there. So it might be it's usually some sort of one-off encounter, um, often inspired by one of the Trek episodes. Right. Um, but some of them are here is a civilization which, depending on which faction you're playing, you you could invade and conquer, or you could. Um, just try to persuade onto your side diplomatically. And mm-hmm. um, what you're absolute, what you're going for in the end is you, you can win by conquering the enemy homeworlds, but this is quite rare. Right. Uh, what you normally end up with is um, try, somebody getting to five ascendancy, which you get from acc- accruing culture tokens, okay. three resources: production, research, and culture. And culture is usually the hardest one to get hold of. No, I mean that's yeah, that that is interesting. I think um, a lot of board games that do the forex thing and or or the civ thing, um, which you know is related, often fall into the trap of military wins. Mm. Um, you can do that, but and I think it would be fair to say that you, while you could play it as a straight war game, it's much more fun when there's diplomacy going on. Mm. Um. And letting people turtle is generally a bad thing because sooner or later, you know, if, if somebody were completely disconnected, they could build up their culture nodes and uh, spend that on ascendancy and mm-hmm. win the game without ever meeting you. So you need to stop them doing that. Uh, it keeps things fairly fairly abstract. You have only one sort of ship. Um, you can upgrade weapons and shields, but that's on your player dashboard, not on an individual ship. Right. You're limited by uh, commands. This, this is the way you, you stop the thing getting completely unmanageable when you've got ships all over the board. Um, moving a ship takes a command. Right. And if you want to move more than one ship together, you need to group them into a fleet, which you mm-hmm. can then move with a single command. Okay. But there are limits on how often you can do that and where and so on. Um, the warp movement is... Uh, I don't know if you've met a game 4000 AD... Uh, early 70s. I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. It, it Basically, a, a zero-luck space war game. Right. Uh, you would put your ships into warp at a particular place, mm-hmm. and then the the, the, the um, piece carrying them would move one space a turn, and then you could decide, okay, I've now gone three spaces, and three spaces from where I started is a system I want to invade, so I will invade there. But you would have right. the choice of any of the systems that were three spaces from where you started. Okay. And this works similarly. You, you um, a ship has three warp tokens on it. You, you leave it next to the system it started from, and then you can instantly jump three systems that are already connected mm-hmm. and drop the ship straight in there. So, so you're sort of building up range effectively, and the other players don't know what direction you're heading in. Yeah. Um, 
it depends obviously on how, how the game goes. It, it's definitely not one of those games that always plays out the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, some games, particularly low player count, you can get quite complex networks forming. Um, a higher player count, it gets crowded and, uh, mm-hmm. um, can I, can I ask, is this, have you played this in person or just online? I have played it in person. Okay. Um, how, how long did it take? A while. <laughs> uh, yeah, after I was just saying a three-hour game starts to cause me to think maybe maybe I should do something else at that time. Mm. Uh, this this can get that long. Um, I mean, I, I think of it as an all-afternoon game. I haven't timed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I think the official rules say something like one hour per player, typically. Right. Yeah. Uh, sorry, that's Matthias' rules, which are a bit more honest than the official rules. <laughs> you know, you know what game play, play time estimates are like. Yeah. Uh, and you can play with anything from three to seven. Uh, you also have the option of the Borg as an NPC threat. Right. Uh, so that that turns it into a. I wouldn't say semi co-op. I mean, you're still trying to win, but you're trying to win before at least you get wiped out by the Borg. Okay, and the Borg, I mean, you, you know my, my knowledge of Star Trek is patchy at best. Mm. They're, they're the, the cyborgs? Yeah, and in, in game terms, they are, they are a big, powerful threat that are very hard to kill and will, at some point in the game, uh, there are various options on how you set it up, will, will pop up and start causing trouble. And at this point, I think pretty much you have to have some level of alliance against them. Okay, so so they're basically the Cybermen from Doctor Who, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put it in British sci-fi terms. <laughs> um, one one of the effects of that, and there there isn't player player elimination as such uh, normally, but if you get assimilated by the Borg, then you effectively become an NPC helper to that faction. Right. Okay. Uh, so you've still got stuff to do, but. Yeah, it's probably probably not as satisfying. So yeah, so it's. I'm trying to think. I mean, that, that isn't player elimination, but you're no longer playing to win. Well, yeah. I how would you describe it? I mean, you you have control over some of the faction's resources, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. So you you couldn't claim to have won if if you do if the Borg do then get a victory at that point. I think. And like, like Firefly, while it is a competitive game, I can't see it being a game people would play tournaments of. There, no. there are certainly people who are better at it than others, but the fun in it is is not so much in winning, but as but in winning a particular way and the the stories you generate while you're doing that, mm-hmm. uh, more than oh well, I did this and this and this and then I won. Yeah, it's um, well, yeah, like like Firefly, it has lots of bits where it's not perhaps as neat as it might be. Sure. Um, so what's, the, what's the what's the player count on it? I don't think we said. Uh, okay, in the base box it is three, mm-hmm. um, which is Federation, Romulan, Klingon factions. There are four individual faction and boxes is that, you can add to that. Is that three players always? Can you play yeah. with two? Um, not really. You okay. can play it solo against the Borg, and I think I guess you could play two player against the Borg, but I don't think that's a particularly supported model. Yeah, that makes some some sense. Um, if you're trying to avoid that, you know, just butting heads kind of game, which it sounds like it is. Yeah, it, it could be if if you just played it as I'm going to build ships and send them after you. You're going to build ships, and send them after me. I suspect it wouldn't be particularly enjoyable. Um, yeah. Fairly rare as essentially a three-player only game out of the box. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if they 
what what I don't know what they were particularly planning to do, and one one of the designers is nowadays, and the other two have moved on to other companies. Right. So, uh, I don't think they were ever much in the way of designers' notes, but uh, there's there's very little hidden information, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Um, you can pretty much see the state of things. Right. There are individual faction powers, and particularly the later expansions, there are uh, some tweaked rules. So yeah, everybody builds star bases normally, and, that, mm-hmm. and you can assemble fleets there. You can build ships there, yep. away from your home system. But the Vulcans don't use star bases; they send out ambassadors instead, and they you know, look down their noses at you and look superior. But collaborating with them can be very rewarding, right? That kind of thing. Uh, everybody's got their own special rules. Everybody's got their own deck of advancements, which are very much in the style of that faction. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say it forces you into to a particular style of play, but um, certainly some of them you you are definitely being guided. You know, when you when you get a starting power that says whenever you win a space battle against at least three ships, you you gain one culture. The, 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 clearly, you're being encouraged to do that. Yeah, I give you some kind of shape to your strategy, so you've, you're not just fumbling around in the dark as you start the game. Mm. And you don't have to follow it slavishly, but it's it's certainly a helpful guide. Mm-hmm. So, not an elegant game, not <laughs> as quick a game as it might be, um, but a game that can be a lot of fun. Uh, I think the first time I played, um, in order to prevent a homeworld victory, the Klingons, having been pushed off their own homeworld, bombarded it into extinction, simply to deny it to the enemy. <laughs> this is the kind of thing that comes yeah. out of the game. It sounds like it's a, you know, a good experience for people that like the IP, which a lot of people do. Or even if, in my case, you don't especially enjoy the IP, but it's it's an easily accessible way to get into the sort of thing that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's no sillier than Space Lions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I should mention Twilight Imperium, because obviously if I like this sort of game, that is the canonical example of mm-hmm. that sort of game. Yeah, um, it always feels a bit more cramped to me. You, you've got r- probably a little, slightly fewer systems, but um, there's, you're always butting up against somebody almost from the start, or at least that's been my experience of it. Right, and the whole Imperial Senate thing gets much more formalised. This is very much you, you can exchange trade agreements, which will give somebody else resources, mm-hmm. but, you, but you don't. They don't give you resources if you keep them. Yeah. Um, but anything beyond that is really up to the players to to put together, and yeah, it w- works for me. Good. Well, in the spirit of um, of trading things, I've been playing Mercator, mm-hmm. which um, I guess again harks back to to forgotten games. If it's possible to have a Rosenberg game that's forgotten. <laughs> Um, you know I'm a big Uwe Rosenberg fan, and I do think Mercator is often overlooked these days. Um, it's from 2011. It's the game that has Clemens Franz doing his impression of a Dutch master on the cover. <laughs> and the the board and the gameplay, if you were to describe it glibly, is equally as unexciting. You are literally pushing cubes in this game. Okay. Um, this is not but- a bad thing as far as I'm concerned. But, no, but it's not a bad thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's very unlike a lot of Uwe's other big box games. For a starter, there is no worker placement. There are no workers. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a game that is purely about c- fulfilling contracts. 
Okay. And you're going to fulfill contracts with cubes of different colors, um, which represent goods. And there's a few sort of interesting things going on. Um, at the start of your turn, you will visit a location, um, which will be either a German city or probably a European country, although Newfoundland is also in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing that happens when you visit that location is you pick up all the cubes that are there. Those cubes will be of one colour. They represent two different goods. They do not become those goods until you move them onto your player board. (laughs) So when you move them onto your player board, if if there's at least two cubes that you're picking up, they must be one of each of two different types of goods. So if it's Sweden from the top of my memory, um, there's the black cubes which represent copper and iron. So if there's at least two there, you must have at least one copper and at least one iron. And you define that by which spot on your player board you put them into. Exactly. Anything greater than two, you're free to distribute in any way you wish between copper and iron. Even all of one. Exactly. Okay. Um, Second thing you do after picking up the cubes that are on that location is you look to see which other locations are connected to it by a line. And each one of those locations will have a cube added to it of whatever colour it's meant to be. Mm. I don't know quite what this represents thematically, whether, <laughs> you know, I, I'm in Sweden and I've heard you're in Hamburg of, oh, I better produce more copper and iron. He might be coming around in a minute. <laughs> I don't know what that link represents at all. I think it's tenuous. Um, thirdly, after you've then distributed all the cubes, you then get the opportunity to f- fulfill a contract at that city if you have, or location, I should say, if you have a contract which... Is, is represented by that location. So and that's going to be what? Deliver so many cubes of or so many goods of what this Yeah, is exactly. Like. So, for example, I might go to France and it wants one fabric, a musket, some saltpeter and some copper. Mm-hmm. Um, or to Russia and they want three livestock, two citrus fruit and a coal. In the multiplayer game, once I earn that, uh, once I fulfill that contract, that will earn me money, which is printed on the bottom of the contract. I keep the contract, so I can go back and fulfil it again if I wish to. Mm -hmm. And part of the game then is to try to get these contracts um, from the same location. So you can keep going back and milking that and really double up and get some big earning rounds. Um, Alternatively, you can look at the the resources that you need to fulfil contracts. And if you can get them to line up, such as you can go to one location and pick up the resources you need for the second location, and then seesaw back between them, that can also be a right. good strategy. If you fulfil a contract, as well as earning the money, you also earn another contract, which is worth one more than the contract you just fulfilled. Right. So if you fulfil a contract that's earning you seven money, you get a contract that will earn you eight money. Is that a random draw getting selected? It, yeah, it's off the top of the deck. Okay. Um, there's eight decks in the game of different values starts ranging from three up to ten yeah um so and you start off with a level two contract of three or four and a five so you will want to sell some of these contracts at some point because you're limited in the one you can only ever have five contracts at a time right 
Okay. Right. Selling them means you get the money. Um, so you don't earn the money just for fulfilling the contract. I think you've earned it. Fulfilling the contract gets you another contract, but selling them gets you the money. You can spend that money on um, warehouses, which will earn you bonus goods in certain cities, or on specific end game point scoring bonuses. Oh, so it's it's that classic German game style of one of the things you can spend your resources on is actually winning the game, but you have to choose when when to do it. Yeah. So the contracts themselves at the end of the game are worth the points that they would earn you in money. But you can yeah. also say, you know, you can buy a building that will, you know, a building, it's a card. You can buy sure. a card that will give you, you know, half a point per unique type of good you've got in your warehouse at the end of the game. So you, you right. can back up more points that way. And that also lets you steer, you see the see what you're doing well at and you choose to get the things that score all those things. Yeah, exactly. So again, it's helping you shape your strategy a bit. Um, the other resource that's in the game that isn't a cube is time. Which is represented by little hourglass tokens. You have heard of Time Cube, right? <laughs> so some of the locations you go to will earn you time in addition to picking up cubes there. Um, Hamburg, I think, gets you the most time. Presumably we're all based in Hamburg, so you're saving time just working in your home city. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the locations will cost you time to go to. Unsurprisingly, in Newfoundland is the most expensive in time to get to. Right. You can also, at some locations, spend, I think, give one time to another player to follow them when they go there. You Mm. won't get any of the cubes from them going there, but you can then say, oh, well, while you're there, can you fulfill this contract for me? Right. Um, So that's sort of another way you can help to fulfill the contracts and rack up a few more points more quickly when it's not your turn. Yeah. Um, I think it says in the book that you can negotiate. It's a really weirdly written way of saying it. So players can't reject people following them. You can negotiate before choosing to go there. (laughs) But these negotiations aren't binding. Right. So quite why you would choose to negotiate at that point. I suppose it's just what kind of person you are if you chose to negotiate and say I'll give you some wine and then say well I'm not giving you the wine then maybe that just has repercussions further down the line they won't be amenable to helping you in future but in this case they don't really ever drive anyway no exactly so I say maybe it's just just a future consequence that they're less inclined to help you on future turns Mm. Um, the game ends when somebody achieves the the peace of Westphalia in a weird historical (laughs) note you, you achieve the Peace of Westphalia by fulfilling a level 10 contract, at which point you automatically get the only level 14 contract in the game, which is the Peace of Westphalia. Right. <laughs> so we're, we're also rich, we can't afford to go to war anymore. Got it. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the solo game changes things up, I think. It's uh, the level 8, 9, 10 contracts are stacked on top of the, the Peace of Westphalia. Mm-hmm. And at the start of every round, you turn one of those over. So it acts as a, a timer. So effectively, you're going to play out 15 rounds. Right. Um, the other changes for solo game, well, obviously, you can't follow anyone because there's nobody to follow. Um, and money no longer exists in the game. Rather than selling contracts for money and then using that money at a later point, 
you have to spend immediately. Mm-hmm. So if you fulfill, you know, if you sell off uh, a seven and an eight contract to give you 15 coins and there's only something out you can buy for 12, well, tough luck, you've lost three. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that describes it in its incredible dryness. I really like it. I think it's a great game. Um, hmm. It's not you know, as exciting or colourful as modern Euros are. But the mechanics that underpin it are really solid. And there are some interesting things that I don't think do exist in any other other games. This weird thing of, you know, populating the cubes around the location that you've just visited. And then there's a lot of interacting little things that just, yeah, it's, it's pretty unique. Even for, it's unique for a Rosenberg game. I think it's unique for a Euro. Yeah, and a lot of the mechanisms you described sound vaguely familiar at the high level, but obviously going to be different in, in detail, and then mm. combining them in the way they're combined. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, it, it looks like one thing. It looks like you're moving around a board, moving cubes and other things, but actually you aren't really moving around the board. It's all about just getting goods <laughs> into your warehouse and fulfilling contracts. It's, it's purely a trading game at that point. Does but, you're, the... but you're trading with the game, not with other players. Yeah. Does the solo variant have that idea of following somebody, or is that just the, the, left out? That's just left out. There's no way you can that's follow anybody out. in it. Um, yeah. As I say, it's not that there is there is one sort of big playing piece, which on mm. your turn you say, right, I'm going there, and everybody shares that playing piece. You aren't represented individually in the game. Okay. Um. So yeah, there's no way to follow in that respect, and then right. I think. Are you joining the Great Trading Expedition to wherever or not? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the, you know that that's where the action is happening on this turn. Mm. And certainly, looking at uh, pictures of it, it's, e- even for a 2010-2011 game, it's not going out of its way to look pretty. No, no. Like, uh, like I say, it, it looks dry and boring. Um, when you try to describe it, it sounds dry and boring. And I think this is why it's kind of forgotten. It looks as if it would be completely unplayable if you have a colour vision deficit of any sort. That would be a huge issue, yeah, because it's it is all cubes. about coloured cubes. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I suppose if the game was to come out now, um, I don't imagine it would come out now with the, the rules that it has, but if it did, it would probably be, you know, lots of individual shaped meeples rather than cubes, which would get over that problem. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how, how you would shape something to be what either sort of good. No. But, yeah. No, and and you know, I said you know that the the black cubes represent copper or iron, while the green cubes represent livestock or muskets. They're not necessarily <laughs> themed. <laughs> yeah. That said, I mean, I'm looking at it, and that there is clearly a, a lot of complexity there. Um, would you say it's reasonably accessible to a new player? Uh, yeah, you know, assuming they don't mind a bit of complexity, they've played complex I, games before. Yeah, yeah. If they played complex games before, I and mean, I think it's a sort of a medium weight game, mm-hmm. um, it's you know probably the same wheelhouse as you know at the gates of Loyang, Rosenberg's other Euros, big box Euros. Yeah, so generally you can work out at least roughly what's meant to be going on. You'll just do quite badly in the first few games. Exactly that. Exactly that's my that. Experience of. Yeah, and in the solo game, just swearing about why you can't possibly hit the threshold you're meant to be hitting to to win. <laughs> so that's Mercator by Uwe Rosenberg. And the other uh, new, 
and somewhat side level game I've, I've played uh, since we last recorded. Um, you were there, in fact, uh, Imperium Classics. Yes, yes, we played Actually together. Playing new hotness, uh, Nigel Buckle and David Tucci. Um, yeah, we've got uh, we've got Andy to thank for this. Andy Offen. Yeah, so I, I played that game with you, and I've played uh, half a game on Tabletop Simulator since. And how how would one describe this? It, it's a civilization themed deck builder, very asymmetric. Yeah, and also. It's not zero interaction, but I would say the interaction is quite low. There's, there's taking cards from the stacks, and some of the cards will affect other players. Having only played it the once, I wonder if you'd be best served, rather than playing different factions every game, playing three to four games with one faction, understanding how that faction works before hmm. moving on to another faction. And eventually, having done that, you're going to understand what you are, the other players around the table are wanting to do. And maybe at that point you start to get a bit more interaction. I don't know. Yeah, in in my second game, I'm I'm playing the Persians again because I felt that well, while I had a good time in the game we played together, mm. there were clearly things I wasn't picking up on. I, I want to uh, learn a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, maybe it is the case that once you have learned a particular faction, it won't won't be as fun to play anymore. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, but even do- even if that is the case. You're getting it's, a lot of plays out of it. You're getting a lot of plays, and it's a good, solid game, but probably somebody else will want it at that point. Mm. And that, that's without considering the uh, interactions between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, it's eight factions in each box, and there are two boxes, I think, something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Imperium Classics and Legends, the other one. Legends, yeah. Which gets to the more... Um, Obscure and uh, ahistorical, and so on. yeah. Well, it, yeah, as in the title. Things that uh, struck me about it, particularly um, the idea that you you are moving from barbarism, which is relatively generic, mm-hmm. to a civilization which is quite specific to the to the faction you have, the deck you have, mm. and quite a lot of those those fun cards you played during the barbarism phase will become useless. And contrastingly, you know, yeah. your civilization cards aren't you aren't, can't be done, can't be used at all until you've made the leap to being your distinct civilization. Not a thing I've seen before, and I think it works rather nicely to say not not just there are two, you know, as as the game is starting to get okay, I know what I'm doing here, um, I've got the hang of this, and bang, I'm now playing a subtly different game. I mean, I think it's analogous if you think about other deck builders, where that there's a there's a pivot point, isn't there? Um, well, I mean, you, you've got to decide when you shift from buying other cards to doing something with those cards. In this, yeah. I think the pivot point is that point switching from barbarism to civilization, and I mean, different civilizations will want to do that at different points. Yeah, I'm thinking of something like Star Realms. I've played quite a bit of. Mm. Uh, that is usually that the, the distinction between play, playing cards for money to buy new ships and mm. playing those ships to attack your enemy. Well, I'm just thinking in terms of, yeah, in, in a traditional deck builder, that sort of pivot point where you're not looking to buy cards anymore. The cards mm. that are letting you buy other cards essentially become trash in your hand. You want to get rid of them. Sure. And that's the same decision point here where switching from barbarism to civilization, as you say, the barbarism cards are essentially trash in your hand and you want to get rid of them. Yeah, I think 
possibly I was playing badly, but I, I didn't get quite that same distinction. It was more that, yes, I do still want to acquire cards after I've become civilised, mm. but I'm acquiring a different set of cards and the ones that were, uh, yeah, all right, the ones that were useful become trash. Mm. But it, it, it's not quite, not quite as straightforward as you were buying cards, now you're playing them. No, no, I, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a different kind of pivot point, but I think it's analogous. Hmm. It's it's still fairly early in my experience of it, but uh, let's just say if, if if we'd had somebody selling copies right there at the end of the first <laughs> game, I would have bought it on the spot. As it is, it seems to be out of stock in most places right now. So I'm, yeah, I, I've put it on my list of tell me when the price goes low. I think we're a long way away from having exhibitors at the UK One Player <laughs> Guild get-togethers. <laughs> Yeah, no. uh, but I mean, it's, I mean, you say about you know, waiting for it to go on sale again. I mean, it, it's Osprey Games, isn't it? Hmm. And Who, they do have discounts quite often. So. Yeah, sort of t- at least twice a year, they sort of heavily discount their games um, in their own store, and and their games often end up heavily discounted in book depository as well, which sure. for international listeners have free worldwide shipping. Yeah, uh, certainly, I got uh, Gaslands that way. Mm. So. Early days, but liking it so far and getting the, I haven't tried it solo yet, but getting the, I'm getting the impression that while while there is a solo bot mode for, for opposing civilizations, a lot of the time you are basically gonna be carrying on with playing your own game as you do yeah. in multiplayer. Yeah. And I have heard um some other people say that it's sort of best at one to two players. Um mm three and especially four that sort of starts to, to drag on a little bit with a lot of downtime. Well, I, th- I think that's a result of, of the relatively low interaction. It's not zero interaction, so you can't run the turns mm. in parallel because you're going to be drawing off the same decks. But at the same time, you don't get to do very much when it's not your turn. No. And I, I mean, that was... I can't say I... I can't say I necessarily got bored and was waiting for the game to end when we played at Silverstone. But I think... Um, Andy, whose game it was, was surprised at how long it went on. Yeah, well, first game for two of us, I suppose. Not yeah, yeah, a learning game is you know is going to add to that. But yeah, I, I think there was a, a surprise in the length of the game. But he he was also saying that even in his, his appearance with with reasonably experienced players, four was too many. Mm. So might might come back to this if I if I get some more games in for next month. <laughs> Uh, Imperium Classics, in this case, Nigel Buckle, David Tucci. So, Roger, you sent me uh, a piece of paper. Yep, Uh, I've given (laughs) copies of that piece of paper to several other people now. Evangelising for regicide. Hmm. Um, which contains possibly the most ridiculous rule I've ever seen in print. Okay. Which is the first player rule. I Oh, right, yeah. Yes, the last person to, to have committed regicide goes first. I will not comment on that. Which I think is probably a rule that only works if you're in a very unique and particular prison somewhere in the world. <laughs> Um, no, yeah, so this I, was... I know some people who get really het up about that kind of thing, and you know, a tiebreaker <laughs> like uh, the the one in um, where everybody plants a tree in the, in the tallest tree after. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are, are ridiculous, and 
I don't really see the point of them for some reason, but a lot mm. of, a lot of, you know, some people do demand that they're included in the rules for some reason. I understand why, why that game designers treat them flippantly, but to have something that is not actually going to even work in that role mm. <laughs> just seems particularly weird to me. As you say, presumably somebody around the table has planted a tree, even if it was 10 years ago. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, this is a, a co-op two to four player game. It's- and played with the standard deck of cards. Um, I believe it's, it does say in the rules that you're not meant to, to discuss your hand with the mm. other players around the table, which technically means it's not soloable if you're going to play by the rules. Uh, well, I, did I not? I thought I sent you a link to the solo variant. So okay, it, uh, I just played it um, two-handed open information. Sure. Um, and it does say in the rules you can do this if you want to play casually, whatever that means. Yeah, um, I I was admin for a couple of games on the forum, um, and in the first one we just had ev- everything open so that people could see what was going on. Mm. Uh, second one, I I kept things more secret. Mm-hmm. That seemed to work quite well. Part of me wonders if, with repeated plays, I would get better at the game <laughs> um, instead of dying when the kings come out. It it is generally regarded as quite hard. Part of me wonders whether it just suffers the same problem that um, a classic game of Patience does, that you're just at the mercy of the draw of the deck. You do have a hand of cards, but particularly for those kings, you need to have combos and high-value cards. Yeah. Um, And if you don't have them, it's going to do you a lot of damage. And if you can't discard the cards to, 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 to absorb that damage, which also means having high cards in your hand, which you didn't have, otherwise you'd have been able to do enough damage to the king to kill it. So it's sort of a strange trap you're in, where if you don't have the high-value cards in your hand, you can neither damage it nor take the damage. And if you can't take the damage, you're dead, and that's the end of the game. Yeah, the the combos help a bit in that respect, but only a bit. Mm. Uh, you, you can play multiples of, of the same number uh, up to a limit to... to, to build a higher card out of smaller ones. And the animal companions have special powers, I think, as well, the aces. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I think there is some some luck of the draw in there. Uh, on the other hand, I have heard of people consistently winning it. So right. that that's not, not me, but it, it's apparently a thing one can learn to do. <laughs> if you're patient. I mean, you know, the, the, the flip side of that is that it's a very quick game. Hmm. Again, like patience. If you lose, well, just shuffle up and go again. Yeah, yeah. You you need to separate the court cards from the others, but otherwise, that's it. Yeah. Which again, if you've already set up the game once, your your four kings, your four queens, and your four jacks are already separated from the others, so that's well, not going to take any extra time. Depending on how well you did, you may you may you have, may shuffle uh, some of them in sure. back into the, into yeah. the main system. Um. Yeah. We we talked, I think, briefly about the art, and it, I don't love it, but it's perfectly playable with normal cards. So yeah, I mean, I, I've only looked at the art that's on the rule sheet you sent me. I haven't looked at the. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the same style. Okay, yeah. So it is what it is, really, isn't it? <laughs> I, I can't. Yeah, I can't see. I've, I mean, I do feel like it's a missed trick in some ways. I think you know they could have gone for sort of a luxury 
ultra fancy deck of cards that people would want to buy as a deck of cards as well as having the rule for this game. Hmm. Or they could have just changed the... <laughs> change the rules up a bit. So instead of, you know, an ace as an animal, actually just have an animal on the card. And instead of, you know, change the Jack, Queen, King to something else, it could still be thematic. And when we talked about this in the last episode, I know that... But then it becomes its own specific deck of cards for that game. Yeah, exactly. And that would encourage more people to buy it, much like um, Love Letter, which again, you know, started out as a game and you can still find the rules online, I think, to to play with a standard deck of cards. Hmm. yeah, it just seems like a, a strange decision by the publisher in that regard to me. Yeah, I the impression I get is is that they they brought it out as the I suppose you call it print and play yeah, and mm. the game you played with the standard deck first, and that's the game they were happy to have. Didn't, they didn't really want to go tweaking it once people were saying yes, we like playing this. So they brought out the cards. But I mean, but we're not talking about tweaking or changing the game in any way. Just changing mm. the theme slightly, or not even changing the theme. Just you know a different deck of cards that goes with it that makes it look unique. Which would, in theory, actually be isomorphic to standard mm. playing cards, but you don't have to label them the same way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's an, it's an unusual model for game publishing. Um, I <laughs> cannot find a way to send them money uh, without actually buying the cards, which I don't particularly want. But Well, it's, uh, it's their decision. They probably have a Patreon or something, everybody seems to. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> we're, we're slipping up, Roger. Shocking. And um, I played Cascadia. Yes. How how did you get on? Well, I, I tried it out on Tabletop Simulator first. There's a decent mob there. Um, and the general feeling was okay. Uh, <laughs> there, there is nothing wrong with this game. It is, it is a competent... Yeah, it's a solid game, game. yeah. Um, and to be fair, I was playing with the standard scoring cards, and I suspect if you change those around a bit, there, there would be a bit more depth mm-hmm. to it and a bit more variation. But essentially, the game always remains: you draw it, you take a tile and an animal, and you place a tile and an animal. Yeah. Um, total thematic disconnect. Yep. As I, <laughs> as I'm, as I'm I glad you said, said that. <laughs> you, you might as well be playing with colours or shapes or. Yeah. You know, there, there is nothing particularly wildernessy about it. To me, I, I don't want to accuse the designer of this because I, I have no idea what what the designer was intending. It felt as though it were trying to be the next wingspan, as in a game that appeals to wilderness environment fans who maybe aren't particularly gamers, do like the wilderness, mm-hmm. are happy well, to play a game themed on that. Just as to me, wingspan is. I mean, you could put parks into that world, world sort of theming world as well. Yeah, um, there, there's a little more uh, theme in parks, but I still don't understand why it is that only one person can visit a park, which is a <laughs> fundamental thing in the game. Yeah, uh, how, how do I trade sunshine for water? Or yeah, I mean, it's the same publisher as Calico, mm. um, which, which I don't I know. haven't played. I, I mean, me neither. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's a similar thing of hex tiles. Sure. Um, and in that one, you're trying to build up a quilt and the tokens are cats to put on it, which is maybe slightly more thematic. Maybe. It's <laughs> a bit least hard. a quilt is something a person does. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I did try a second game face-to-face with... I, I had a convenient test subject, uh, someone who is 
fairly new to modern board games. Right. You know, plays uh, a lot of traditional card games, things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Hasn't, hasn't played a lot of the, of the current stuff. Uh, she didn't mind the thematic disconnect at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but she did find it very irksome that you don't have to match the terrain types. Every time she had to put down a tile that, did, that didn't join up. Yeah. It just felt, this is wrong. Yeah. So I, I think I can, I think I know what, what games I'm going to offer her next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you, you do, you score points for managing to match them up. That is something to consider. Um, so I guess you could argue that's a, a flexibility in it and all, Landscape types have to begin and end somewhere. Yeah. Um, Though, but... I mean, she she was, I, I would say, and we, we had a chat about this afterwards, uh, she was a bit lost at the beginning by halfway through the game, was pretty clear on what was happening and, and why okay. and how and how to, how to do it, and indeed did beat me by a point. So, so I mean, that's <laughs> probably the... Probably the level the game's aimed at, isn't it? It's, I think you know, so, it's, yeah. it's not a complex game. It, it's that lighter end of the market, which I mean, again, we, you know, light doesn't mean bad. We were um, just talking about Mercator, and I, I think it would be fair to say, from from your description at least, that it's probably not a game you'd want to play as your first game, if, even if you're very smart. No, no, uh, absolutely. Whereas this is absolutely available to that. Yeah, it's it's colourful, it's solid. Just for you and me, there's a, there's a disconnect between what you're doing in the game and what it looks like you're meant to be doing. Yeah, well, but to be fair, that that's true of a lot of euros as well, um, mm. including a bunch of games I do like. I'm I'm, I'm not as purist about theme as I, I would like to claim I am. <laughs> I think, particularly for a game. I, I see, obviously, a lot of announcements of new games. Mm. And my general reaction is, what does this game offer that is not already offered by a game I either know or mm-hmm. own or both? Yeah. And this doesn't really seem to be offering anything particularly new. On the other hand, you know, they're not aiming it at me. They're not aiming it at the no. person with a, with a multi-hundred game collection. They're, they're I mean, it's, it's, at... had, it's had a lot of hype on Board Game Geek. It's, yeah, mm. not all the major reviewers have covered it. Uh, no pun included. Just came out with a very positive review. They did, yeah, I saw it. But we're sort of um, we're, we're on the other side of this, and in a strange way that you I mean neat, we're both saying it's a good, solid game, mm. but neither of us particularly want to play it again. I, I logged to you know, ten plays or so of it, and I, I, I'm moving it on. Yeah, um, and I, I, I might knock it up on the table or something later again. Uh, the, the chap I played with it there uh, felt as we were saying about Imperium, that there really was very little interaction. There's, mm. do, do, are you going to take the tile slash animal that I want? Yeah. But that's it. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I, I as you know, I, I love tile, tile laying games. And that's mm. why when I saw this came out, I went, yeah, tile laying game, lovely theme. Except the theme doesn't really get carried through. Yeah. Um, the other thing that struck me was... Um, I felt particularly given that you've, you're putting the animal tiles down on top of the mm. um, hex tiles, the hex tiles could have been a bit clearer. And um, particularly the water versus mountain mm-hmm. wasn't always as obvious as it as it right. might be. Okay, uh, is a graphic design thing. Yeah. I think. Yeah, that wasn't something I'd picked up on, but you're probably right. Well, I'm, I'm not a graphic designer. What did you? Any person who feels this way. What did you think about uh, graphic design and the art in general? Um. Because I mean, this is something else that you know the art in particular has been praised. Hmm. It's. 
I mean, it's re- reasonably, it, well, first of all, it's representative. You work, you can work out what's going on. That's fine. Um, mm. It didn't seem to me to add much to the game, but I wonder whether that might be because of the thematic disconnect. I mean, the actual paintings of animals, I quite like. Right. Uh, the tiles, I like rather less. Mm-hmm. But that might be a layout thing. I, I'm just contrasting this with um, Strategic Ascendancy we were talking about earlier, which has really very little art. Mm. Um, the exploration cards, the things that, you know, the random encounters when you go to a new system have, have usually a still from one of the shows. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you have pictures of planets, and that's about it. Yeah. And to me, that actually feels better. And if you, you could have had a, a you know, an image for each piece of research, but I don't think that would have helped. No. Uh, it's, but yeah, it's pretty. Um, we, we may well talk about parks at some future point. I think there is more complexity there. Um, but again, it's, it's clearly designed to look good as well as to be a playable game. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say there's more complexity in parks, which I think a lot of people would regard as a very light game. It, it's still quite light, but it, but there's a bit more to it than there was here. I mean, you, you've got um, which of these four things am I going to pick, or am I going to spend a pine cone to do a skewed pick or, or wipe the animal tokens? Mm. Um, there's a bit more decision-making in parks. Uh, you know, how far do you go forward? Which which squares do you try to lock people out of? That kind of thing. I'm, I'm not saying it's a heavy game by any means, but mm. but compared with this, there is there is a bit more meat to it. Um, and again, it, it's well. Obviously, they started with pre-existing art. Uh, the, the, those um, paintings promoting the, the the national parks. Yeah, I did so. notice um, Beth Sobel, the uh, the artist for Cascadia. Hmm. Um, I think she's currently publishing a, a calendar or some such Fair thing, um, which has some art which bears a striking resemblance to some of the art in Cascadia in it. Hey. Which came first? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I'm not a person generally who buys games based on how pretty they are. Uh, I'm Generally, I, I am sometimes very weak. Um, I've just bought a copy of Zia Legends of a Drift System with the mm-hmm. Kickstarter bits because of, yeah. But, I didn't feel that the art was dragging me into the game. No. There's a, there's a disconnect between the art on the cards and what you're actually doing. Well, that's the thing. It, it could be the best art in the world, and I think I might well feel the same way, yeah. because uh, yeah. you, you don't really care what sort of animal this is. You just care that it's the way, the animal you have to put in straight lines. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I mean, it, it, we discussed in the last episode, I'm, I'm not a fan of Beth Sobel's art. But actually, it doesn't really matter what's on those cards because they're off to the side of the game board and you're not really looking at them while you're playing. Hmm. Or if you are, you're looking at the actual hex arrangements. Yeah, you, you look at them at the start of the game and you might glance at them again through through the game just to remind yourself, but it's nothing to do with what you're actually doing. It's not like a card game where that's what you're looking at through the game. That's what you're interacting with. Yeah, if, if you head down on the, on the board, it's the... Oh, what, how would you call it? Sort of light, coloured line drawings of the animals, mm. and then, then the habitat tiles. So, yeah, it doesn't and, and who knew that bears were monogamous? <laughs> That's what I've learned from the game. <laughs> <laughs> but bears only like to exist in pairs. 
Whereas moose like to be in straight lines. And circles. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, nothing, nothing I can really say to say it's a bad game, but it's not a game that appeals to me. Yeah, it's, it's not a bad game. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're saying all the same things I said in the last episode. It's, it's a solid <laughs> game. Um, it doesn't excite me. And I have, there, there is a whole subgenre, well, subclass of games that I would call uh, like Carcassonne only fun, because mm. possibly because <laughs> I had some experiences with Carcassonne early in my game playing career, which were just far too long for the amount of fun we got out of them. But yeah, things like Cacao or Isle of Sky. Isle of Sky is a great game. Um, as you know, I, I love Vikings, um, mm-hmm. which we played at Silverstone the other week. Um, yeah. Again, an, you know, an older game now. That's I think it's two thousand seven that that came out. Um, with se- with that uh, selection wheel, which hasn't been in any other game since, it's still a unique thing. Yeah, I suppose uh, you could call it sort of rondel like, but not very. No, no, it, like um, Glass Road. It looks like a rondel. It isn't. Um, mm. And Glen Moore, you know, a, yeah. a, a yeah. bit more complex than a than Carcassonne, maybe. Um, but again, a great game. So yeah, I don't think I'm done on title in general. I think this is just, if I hadn't met all the hype, I might have been happier about it. But when I see a game that is very highly uh, praised, I expect it to be something a bit special. Yeah. Try before you buy. Yeah. And probably people who, who are listening to this podcast aren't the target audience, but you know, don't, don't let us put you off if, if this sounds on, like on, a fun thing. On the other hand, we might have just lost our entire listenership. If you're looking for a, light, a lightweight tile layer, particularly if you if it's the thing you want to play with relatively non-gaming family. Oh, Christmas is yeah. coming up in the not-too-distant future. And people may actually be seeing each other in person again this year. Yeah. So, so Cascadia. Okay, so voting is underway for the One Player Guild's, what is it, Top 100 Games, People's Choice. And uh, we thought that was a good thing to talk about, the general usefulness of top lists, best lists, best games of the year, all the rest of it. And to help us discuss that, we're joined this month by Vicky. Hi, Vicky. Hi, Lee. Hi, Roger. <laughs> Thanks for <Welcome>. having me. <laughs> So Vicky's a, a long-time member of the One Player Guild, um, slightly less active now, she tells me, than she used to be, but I think you know, a lot of things have changed for, for people over the last year or two. Yeah, definitely. Um, so any other way people would know you, Vicky? No, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I, I mean, I'm in the women and gaming forums. I used okay. to be when I was when I was active on Board Game Geek. I'm hoping to get. Hoping to be more active again. You reminded me that it exists. They 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 know nothing about your secret jigsaw puzzle channel with with its millions of viewers a day. (laughs) Yes. No, no such thing. So yes, people's choice top one hundred. I know you've been doing a bit of research into last year's list, Vicky, which I'm not going to put you on the spot for immediately. Um, call it research. I've looked in, looked at the page. <laughs> I mean, as far as podcasts go, that's like hours of normal people's research. 
But I mean, ge- gen- just general feelings then. What, what are people's feelings about lists, top tens, everything else? I know my partner cannot see the point of lists, hates top ten, anything else. If, if she catches me listening to or watching a, a top ten about board games, she can't understand why I'm doing it, what the interest is, anything else. Um, where do you stand on that? Um, I think I, I enjoy them. I, I like lists in general in life. So, um, yeah, I enjoy that. I think if you have a personal list, someone, if someone's written a personal top 10 list or is, is you know, a video of a personal te- top 10 list, I think they're more useful to me if the person explains why mm-hmm. each list, each game is on the list. Um, because obviously we all have very different tastes Taste, in games. Yeah. So just because someone loves the game doesn't mean I'm going to love it. No, I think for a list like this, you know, I, I can look at it and see terraforming Mars is higher than Eon's end. That doesn't really mean anything to me at all. But telling me that a whole bunch of one-player uh, gamers think terraforming Mars is worth looking at is an interesting thing in itself. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I think there's two things there. That one context is what we're saying is the important thing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and two, slightly more flippantly, it's reassuring that Vicky likes lists. So I know um, <laughs> Nick Cornby in High Fidelity said it was a very blokey thing to do, that men just made lists about everything, and, and that was sort of the end of what lists were about. So, But it's obviously not completely gender-specific. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in terms of the context, I think you're right in terms of um, why is it on that list. And to me, the interesting thing around the the people's choice voting was the individual lists that get published around the same time, people that create their own geek lists of their top 20s that they're submitting to vote. And in the past, I found that a really useful way to find new, what do they call them, geek buddies. People to Hmm. follow where I can see they've got a similar taste in games to what I have. Um, and that sort of pays off a lot more. And if there's one game there that I was aware of and hadn't thought that I'd like it, but they were rating it really highly, or perhaps it's something I hadn't heard of at all and I can go and look at it, that that's more useful to me than, you know, what the number one game is by committee. Yeah, I mean, same with the BGG Hotlist. Well, while I would probably have things to say to most people in, in the One Player Guild, um, compared with, you know, all the, all of BGG, there's still a lot of different tastes in there and people who like things that don't appeal to me and vice versa. So Yeah. I or to put it another way, I don't really care what's what's at number one. <laughs> but, yeah, but definitely. It's in, but it's interesting that at least enough people think it's good that it's worth a look. It's always a, a helpful barometer to see just how out of line your own tastes are with consensus. <laughs> <laughs> I know I found when I I guess when I first found the One Player Guild, I I think I found some interesting games off that list. Um, certainly at that point, I was mm. um, in a very shopaholic phase, and so I did buy a lot of games. And yeah, like you say, um, we don't all like all of the games at the, on the list. And you know, Mage Knight was 
yeah. long-term number one. So I said, obviously, I must have this the game. The best game. <laughs> the best game. But it turned out it is not the game for me at all. But I think that's, I mean, that serves enough to remind us, really, I guess, of what the point is. Uh, you know, I said to me, the, the top 20 lists that appear around it are more interesting because I can find people with the same taste that I've got. If you're just starting out in solo games, then that top 100 list is is gold dust. It, you can explore lots of you know good games from a variety of people with different tastes and start to work out what the things are that you like and don't like and form your own opinions. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, it took me it took me probably a few years to work out what games I like, what type of games I like, so that I can judge a game more quickly mm-hmm. um, whether or not it's going to be one for me. And obviously, that doesn't always. That's not always accurate. There's yeah. so many games that I've thought those mechanisms and mechanisms I yeah. strongly dislike. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can think now. of games where the the mechanisms, if you list them, are all the things I'd say I don't like. Yeah. But they could well be in my top 20 games. Absolutely, yeah. So <laughs> we're really confusing things now quite early on in the conversation. <laughs> Sorry about that. That is my username, you know, Confused Vicky. What did you expect when you invited me on the podcast? <laughs> for, for the confusion to be controlled, confined to you. Well, I didn't. No, no. I, yes. I, I managed to confuse my physics teacher once when he asked me to explain something. And by the end of it, neither I nor he knew how electricity worked anymore. <laughs> <laughs> All you need to know is not to mix it with water. I think that's the important thing. <laughs> that's not something that will pass your exam for you, though. <laughs> <laughs> this this list, at least, has the virtue of being basically open to any game from any time. Because mm. um, particularly this time of year, people are starting to talk, talk about their top of the year. Yeah. lists, especially once Essen has uh, happened, which I think is happening as this episode comes out, more or less. I'm not there. Lee is. But I, uh, I think yeah. both of us would rather be at the opposite end, but hey, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, you can, if you can lend me your... No, I was going to say, yeah, if you can lend me your beard, Roger, one way or another, I'm sure we can come up with a disguise. <laughs> but um, I, I think we, we were saying before we started that uh, all of us have tended in the last year or two or three to be more playing games that are maybe a few years old that we hadn't met before for our new game fit mm. rather than necessarily the latest shiniest thing. Yeah. I mean I think I mean the interesting thing with the the one player guild list, the people's choice list, is that I think the median age of a game there is probably two to three years old. It has to have been mm. out long enough for people to be playing it and enjoying it, but not so long that they've started to move on to other things. With a couple of exceptions like Mage Knight. Yeah, yeah, something that's really stood the test of time. Mage Knight, Lord of the Rings, the card games, those sort of perennial favourites. I mean, anything that is just launched isn't yet in enough hands for it to get enough votes to appear on the list. Yeah, Yeah, and I think Eon's End benefits there because, what is it, four or five years since it first came out, but it's had a new box most years since then. Yeah, which keeps it fresh in people's minds. And And, and it all stays compatible. Mm-hmm. This is where I should probably say, disclaimer, I, I have demoed for indie boards and cards, publishers of Eon's End. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's really uh, what's informing your bias towards it, though, is it? I don't think so. I mean, I, when well, I first Was it Vicky it, that first introduced you to Aeon's End? Complete uh, side note. No, it was actually it was the, the other rest, way around. Was it? It was yeah. the rest of the demo team. Uh, 
on the, I think it was the Friday night at Essen, they, they said um, X or Y isn't going to be able to make it tomorrow. Right. Uh, we need more Eons End demonstrators. Would somebody be willing to take the rule book and look at it overnight and demonstrate it in the morning? And I said, yeah, okay, fair enough. And I did. <laughs> and to be fair, it's a really good rule book. It was very easy it, to it understand. And in the morning I said, yeah, I'm reasonably happy with this. Just quick check over. Yep. And played it about, I don't know, 10 or 12 times that day, right. as one does as a demo. And then at the end of it, found, yeah, I really like this game. I want a copy now. Because yeah, I think the only time I've played it was with the two of you. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Was that, yeah, because I, I know I wanted to play it. It was on my list of things that. Um, that Unless it wasn't you at all, Vicky, it was that Aircon a few years ago. That that would have been. Yeah. That. Aircon a few years ago was when Roger taught it to me. Yeah, so that would have been the only game that I played. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it has, it has the problem, of course, that being in at least two large boxes at this point, it's kind of hard to shift from one one convention to another. Yeah. But but then yeah, you have your thought... your convention trolley. <laughs> yeah, though though. <laughs> But just just before the pandemic, the conventions were starting to get very very uh, picky about that because they're obviously trying to ca- cram in lots of people and, and they don't like large luggage. Uh, it was very large luggage. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm just just looking down the list. There, there are games on here that I'm I'm yeah. There's the 2020 one PG list uh, games I love, games I've enjoyed but passed on, games I definitely don't want to play. I haven't actually found anybody whose who's board gaming tastes particularly match mine yet, but they're probably out there. I'm sure there must be. And yeah, I think, you know, if, if you look around the, say, the top, the, there's normally, and there probably is going to be again this year if there isn't already, a um, an aggregate geek list of everybody's top 20 list as well. So that's something to subscribe to if you're active on Board Game Geek to, mm-hmm. to find these people with a similar taste to you. Yeah. So once you have Geek Buddies, you actually follow them? What do you do? Because I haven't really... The, the, the intricacies of Board Game Geek. You you can choose to follow them. That's a separate action. Yeah. <laughs> um, for the most part, they just sit in the background. There is a thing you can go and click on to look at your board your Geek Buddies and their latest activity. But the yeah. other thing is, if you go and look at an individual game, um, if I can just get a game up somewhere on another tab now to to have a look um i think it's something like look at you know what do my geek buddies think of this or yeah because i've got i've got some geek buddies but i very rarely interact with that side of board game yeah so there's a thing you can click Hmm. on it says geek buddy analysis so that will tell you the ratings from any of your geek buddies that have rated it right Interesting. Yeah, we, we've got a thread on the discussion, particularly forum, uh, where some somebody uses Board Game Geek a lot more than I do, has, has put in various, um, you know, how how to find geek buddies, how to how to manage them, how to see what they think about a specific game, and so on, step by step. So I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff you can do on there, which isn't immediately obvious, and um, it's probably getting less obvious as they make the site more user friendly. If that makes sense. It has the air of having accreted over quite a lot of years and probably quite a lot of developers. Yeah. But we're getting slightly off topic, I think, with that. Sorry about that. <laughs> as, as we want to do. We, we never digress. <laughs> are, yeah. are, we, are either of you likely to vote in this year's Top 100? 
This is where we lay all the cards on the table now and say that just don't bother listening to our podcast because we don't know what we're talking about. I, I'm not planning to vote this year. I think I've probably got three three games I've played solo this year mm. and each of them once or twice. So I don't think it's... Oh, yeah, I, I won't even hit the, the minimum required five games to vote for. Although I guess I have some old favourites that I could vote for, but... Yeah, I mean, that's a, a personal thing, isn't it? We were talking about this off-air beforehand, that both of us prefer to, to vote for games that we've played that year. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a similar, similar thing with me. I have been playing quite a few games, but mostly not solo. I think in part because, you know, if I'm, if I'm playing on BGA, that's definitely with other people. Um, a, a solo game that doesn't even have the physical bits doesn't really work for me. Mm. So that... That reduces me to my collection, which is granted not a small collection. But then, then I have the choice of: do I get out the physical bits and spend several hours playing playing a complicated solo game, or do I, do I just dash something off quick on BGA with a bunch of strangers? Yeah, I mean, for me, I would rather play a solo board game than play on the computer. And yeah, you know, we've talked about this mm. before. It's just individual taste, isn't it? Um, I'm yeah, probably it's also laziness at the, the point of actually doing something about it. Yeah, yeah. I know that feeling as well. Sometimes it's easier just to sit on the sofa and do nothing. <laughs> um, no, I'm probably less likely to vote as well. I know I didn't vote last year. Um, and for listeners that don't know, I have a lot of mental health problems. And what I've begun to realise in recent years is that sort of September, October time, I find particularly difficult. And I've found, I've started to realise that my engagement with board games drops off around these months. So as voting has crept back away from the November time that it used to be, I find it more and more difficult to actually summon up the energy and interest to to vote. Yeah, that makes sense. I think for me that kind of a mental health thing during the pandemic for why mm. I haven't played as many games. Yeah. And, and yeah, like you say, you, we learn we learn to recognise our patterns or you know things that are happening going on with us and. We have to kind of accept that that is a thing and work around it rather than beating ourselves up. For it's what we a, can't do. Yeah, it's an important no. and difficult thing to learn. Yeah, and for, for two out of three of us, at least, this this is in, entirely a thing we do for fun rather than for money. Yeah, um, I, I, I hope Lee, you're do, you're doing this mostly for fun rather than for money. Well, it started off that way. <laughs> <laughs> Because I mean, of turning a hobby into, into yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 you can have a, a whole rant on on um, the nature of work and so on. So you know, take take that as read. But something like this, I, I think, if it stops being fun, that there, there should, one should be able to say, well, you know, I'm I'm yeah, you know, I'm I'm not doing this to get a promotion or something else. I'm doing this for my own satisfaction. If I'm not getting my own satisfaction out of it, then it ain't then working. What's the point? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think you raised another important point there related to that, Vicky. We hear so much about how the lockdown was a boom for solo board gaming. But for a lot of people, myself included, it it was really difficult. And I know in 2020, Mm. my my solo board gaming just dropped off a cliff between April, sort of just, you know, the first month of lockdown and November, I didn't play a single board game. Yeah, I I really had to learn to to accept that that was okay, because before that I was a solo gamer and was like, yes, I played great solo games 
because actually I like playing games more mm. than I have the social. I like playing games more than like people. Yeah, exactly. I was very much <laughs> that way. Just conform to all the stereotypes. It's fine. <laughs> I like game, I like people to a degree, but I only have so many, so much social capacity for dealing with people. Mm-hmm. And I had yeah. before the pandemic, I had a lot more capacity and and wish to play games. And somehow, with all the anxiety and weirdness of the pandemic the playing games playing games became not a thing I wanted to do anymore yeah and Mm. yeah it was really weird because so many people like you were saying Lee so many people were saying oh well now it makes sense to play solo games um and for me and for for us misanthropes who had been doing it for years said I don't want to do it anymore (laughs) yeah I don't want to do it everyone's doing it I don't want to do it anymore (laughs) that wasn't quite (laughs) but yeah Yeah, so I had to kind of almost forgive myself for that and go okay fine I'll do jigsaw puzzles for a bit Mm -hmm. and come back to board games when I when I can yeah yeah I I think just as one one gets irked when a a designer says or a reviewer says oh there's a solo mode in case you can't persuade people to come over yeah or or to learn the game there's a solo yeah. mode because I want to play it solo. Yes. Exactly. Have either of you ever brought a game to game night to play with other people in order to learn it so you can play it solo yourself later? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, I have. I can't remember doing that, but I could see myself doing that. So yeah. maybe I've, I've got to know how to play this game before I can apply the extra solo rules. It's going to be more tip, more tricky. It's like an Absolutely, extra complexity yeah. there. So I'll pl- I'll make you people learn the base game with me, and then I'll go home and play it solo. <laughs> I, I think I have I have had people teach me the game, like go gone to board games night, had someone else teach me the game mm. so that I could go home and play it solo. <laughs> See, that's the mark of a true solo gamer. <laughs> I've, I've certainly, uh, when I've been bor- borrowing uh, games from Lee to, to try out when we've been talking about them, started to dread the here are the rules, and here off, here off at the back is the, are the solo rules. Yeah. And so I've, I've got to read them both at once to try to work the, out what I actually The worst offender for this, and it's something that I meant to mention in our discussion of it a few episodes ago, is DR Congo. Mm-hmm. And I think I did mention that the Wagner brothers, brothers did some pretty idiosyncratic things with their games that rule book is an example of their idiosyncrasies and i understand what they were trying to do but it just fails on every level (laughs) so what they do is they start they start off and say this is the basic game learn to play this game and then add in these things for this game and then add in these things for this game and add in these things for this game so you get up to the fourth level of difficulty effectively by adding in extra parts to the game and extra rules Mm -hmm. and each one begins this game is just like the previous game with the following changes. And then the fifth bit is the solo rules, which is this game is just like the previous game, but with these changes. So to learn the solo game, you've got to flip back and forth between five different rule sets. Yeah. It's, it's bad, awful. It's bad, bad enough with a relatively simple game, Flashpoint, which tells you the family game and then the, the advanced game 
as changes to the family game. Yeah. But just put it all in one place, please. But this is it. And it, it doesn't take a lot. All it needs is a little box to the side of the rules that says, for one player games or for solo games, do this. It yeah. doesn't need to be a separate section at the back. So you have to flick back and forth the whole time. <laughs> yeah. One of these days we can have a long rant on rule book design. <laughs> yeah. And I, to be, I mean, to be fair, it, it, it is around. really difficult. I know. I've tried writing rule books a different way. I've tried writing rule books as I would teach a game to somebody. So, mm-hmm. you know, the aim of the game is this. You win by doing this. And to do that, you need to do this, 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 and this. And then people that are used to rule books have come along and said, this is awful. How can you do this? And I forgot in doing that, that a game, a rule book isn't just for learning a game. It's for reference as well. Yeah. So it, it, it is, it is a challenge, but we're getting well, way I, off topic again. Yeah. <laughs> Well, one of the things where I'm coming towards is, um, as, as a sort of side effect of um, taking on the migration of the Shut Up and Sit Down forums, mm. um, I ended up as the de facto administrator of the Purple's Choice Awards. So this is um, voting by forum members on right. favourite games of the year. Um, categories are fairly loose, but this is always... Yeah, it has a game game of the year, but it also has had from the start an explicit game published before this year that I only found out about this year award. Right, okay. And are there shortlists published for the awards, or is it just there's an award and that's that? Well, it, it's very little. What, what I did was uh, borrow the Hugo Award system, so there's a nomination process, um, and you can nominate up to, I think, about five things in each category, something like that, and then that, that gets processed to produce a shortlist Right. And then for the final voting, you, you vote for stuff on that list with a preference order. Okay. Um, it's not an award that I'm familiar with, I must admit. But, I mean, how, how do you feel about it? How do you feel it fits in, reflects anything? Well, it, it helps, I think, that this this is a self-selected community. This This is not only people who are, to some extent, fans of Shut Up and Sit Down, but people who want to participate on the forum. Yeah. Um, and obviously, we we make arrangements. If if somebody else who who wants to, you know, not not be on the forums but still get involved because they're they're a fan of the show, you know, fine, we we, yeah. we can sort that up. But I, I, it's it's mostly the forum regulars who end up voting. And I don't think we have a group think, right? Uh, but but there is definitely a a trend in. Well, for example, we're probably not going to go for the extremely light games as our game of the year. No, I'm, I'm imagining it's probably more sort of medium weight, very highly interactive games with maybe a bit of silliness in there. Um, medium <laughs> to heavy. Uh, silliness, I don't think, was particularly a factor. Uh, I should probably pull up last year's awards to see what we actually said. <laughs> okay, so look, looking at uh, best game of 2019 to 2020, mm-hmm. uh, we came out with Pax Premier Second Edition on top. Uh, the crew and wavelength at two. Uh, I would see that as silliness. <laughs> Un- Unmatched Battle Legends, Forgotten Waters, and um, Wingspan tying with no award. As the yeah, yes, we yes we liked this enough to shortlist it, but not quite. Okay, yeah. So medium. I don't know about. I've never played Wingspan. Is that highly interactive? I think the others are. Not very. Um, no. We will probably have talked about it with the other thing that we're going to talk about in a segment that we will <laughs> record after this, but but put in the show before it. Yeah. So, it has uh, the way time works. 
But, um, it, yeah, w- one of the strangenesses was, um, was it the Golden Geek Awards in, in 2019 where Wingspan based on, basically, basically won every category everything yeah. it was eligible for? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's not a, not a terrible game, but it was probably not the best game of the year in every category, so. Are there, are there any awards that you do pay attention to? Spiel, Spiel Yaris. Hmm. I'll, I'll at least take a look at, uh, if only because they often list games that I've simply never heard of. Right. And, yeah, there, there are lots of games I cannot keep track with every, every of every game released, um, but a bunch of people think this is worth a look. Mm-hmm. Is at least worth a look. See, for for me, I'll, I'll look at Spielder's Yaris. I don't think. Sometimes I'm surprised by some of the nominations. But I don't think there's ever anything I haven't heard of on there. But the one that I do always look out for um, that's less well publicised is the Portuguese Jogo Dosano. Yeah. Which I think is more like what the people that complain about Spielder's Yaris every year. Jogo Dosano is what they want Spielder's Yaris to be. Oh, it's slight, they're slightly heavier games. Oh, okay. Yeah, because there's the Kennerspiel des Jahres, which is... Yeah, like, which is sort of in between. With, yeah. So I think the Spiel des Jahres is sort of family weight. Kennerspiel, I understand there's some kind of confusion as to how Kenner should be translated. <laughs> um, but it's sort of that next step is probably the best way to look at it. It's not a family weight, but it's not that much beyond it. It's not a super complex game. Which, which is where I spend a lot of my gaming time yeah and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that there's a lot of good games in that sort of area but the uh yeah the, the joga dosano is where you'll see things like the lacerda games being nominated the rosenbergs um mm. barrage i think won it a couple of years ago so it's the the heavier euro games are, are there any awards that you just turn your nose up at in the board gaming side there are probably lots of them that I've simply never heard of. Uh, for, for me, it's the UKGE Awards. Did you know they have mm. a Game of the Year? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, it's more they, a case for they me. Have, they have the loads of categories, um, but you have to nominate your game before... You have to be exhibiting at the, at the convention... You have yeah. to nominate your game beforehand into their categories, which are a bit arbitrary, and does it really fit into that category or doesn't it? Hmm. Um, and then the votes, uh, you c- if you attend and you get a programme, you're eligible to vote and you've got the voting forms. But what kind of person actually goes around and goes to all the games, so right, this game's eligible to, eligible to a vote, I'm going to go to that stand and play it and goes around all the different games to try it. They're not going to. Yeah. <laughs> But then, uh, but then I guess with any award, with any with any award like the um, One Player Guild, mm. Top 100, that kind of forum award, most of the people voting will not have voted, uh, will not have played all the games they could have voted for no. and mm. compared them. It's just no. uh, which ones did I experience and like. Yeah. And it's, it's that... We, we, Again, going back to when you said earlier that you'd only played three games this year, you could vote for technically could vote for games in years past. Yeah. And I said, you know, I don't do that either. And it is interesting with that one player guild as the awards are more or the voting are more familiar with the people that express how they've t- chosen to vote and cast their votes. Everybody's got different criteria for Absolutely. it. And it's just interesting yeah. when it becomes explicit on that front. 
Uh, so I when think with something like the Golden Geeks are vulnerable simply because, you know, if 100,000 people like Wingspan and 10,000 people like something else. But again, I mean, you know, that's, that's a popularity contest, isn't it? Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not 100,000 people who like it. It's just that's the game they've played. If that's yeah, the only game they've played that was new that year. The marketing. Yeah. And, and I guess, like you said, for the, um, for the UK Games Expo Awards, Lee, um, the, the randomness of the categories, I've, I've, I've not voted in the Golden Geeks in a mm. while, but when I did, I think my impression was you could vote. My impression was that games were nominated in categories that didn't really apply to them. Yeah. Or, um, maybe that was my subjective view of it. But if if enough people nominated a game for that category, it got into that category. Yeah. Like you say, if Wingspan was popular enough, and I don't dislike Wingspan, but if it was popular enough, then yeah. And and I guess I think Scythe did the same. And I love Scythe. It's one of my top games. But I think it's year it did the same thing. I, I was aware this year, um, Maze Howe was shortlisted for some of the most anticipated game things on Board Game Geek. But it didn't make the cut for solo game, which I found really weird. Because that's what it was. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the, yeah, the idiosyncrasies of that are just strange. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the, the board game geek ones, I've never cast votes for anything because I always look at the shortlist and go, well, I've only played one of those games or two of those mm-hmm. games. Therefore, my opinion doesn't matter. But oh, a lot yeah, of people I, don't look at it like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to admit, I'm not as rigorous as that either. I, I'll look at it. And if it's, if I've only played one, but I like that one enough, I will still vote for it. Mm. So, yeah, we're back to where we started, I think, really, aren't we? The context <laughs> behind these votes and... Again, the, the individual top 20 lists that happen around the one-player guild top 100, where you can see it's one person's taste, and hopefully they've gone through and said, I really like this because, and they give yeah. reasons for each game. And that, that makes for an interesting an interesting list, and yeah. finding out the taste of that person and where they're coming from. Yeah, well, I think you have to... Um... Not everybody's going to be able to lay, lay it out as, you know, I really hate worker placement because a worker... I bashed my granny or something. It's <laughs> all <laughs> so coming out now, Roger. But but once you know their biases, you can say, okay, well, you know, I don't care one way or the other about worker placement. You liked the rest of this game apart from that aspect, mm. and therefore that might be one I enjoy. That kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then you've got the people that say, oh, you like deck builders. Why, why haven't you tried Mage Knight? Oh, no. Because it's not just a deck builder. There are other things going on in that game. I love deck builders, but no to Mage Knight. Vicky, why don't you love Mage Knight? I... I guess partly it's I'm too lazy to get good at it and I did not enjoy how bad at it I was from having done like the rule book and the videos. Can't remember whose videos they are. Vicky's Vicky Roy. That that's the ones, yeah. So it was just a painful slog. And I say that as someone who loves um leaving Earth because it's a different kind of slog and I like the maths and spreadsheet aspect of leaving mm. Earth. Yeah, you're really selling it to me now. So space and maths. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic, but only for the kind of people who like spe- specifically that kind of thing. 
I, I think it would be fair to say that the good side and the bad side are the, are the same thing. If if you want to be able to plan your own missions and design your own spacecraft rather than just use something that somebody else has pre-built into the game, great, you can do that. But you have to do the design part to do that. Yeah. Not that we're wandering off topic again or anything. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the yeah, this it's podcast really worked fine no, before you came on, Vicky. We never went off topic. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, had, I had heard that in the bit that I listened to. <laughs> I'm just look, looking through the, through these awards. Last, um, I, I ended up to, to try to sort out the category problem, uh, borrowing the BGG categories. So you know, best abstract strategy game, best children's game, and so on. Right. Uh, and well, for example, Map Maker came up on the top of Best Abstract Strategy. And it's it's quite a fun little game. It, it's on BGA. Uh, mm-hmm. you're, you're basically le- putting down political boundaries to, to try to gerrymander a victory for your, for your side. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of fun, but it's vanished without trace now. I haven't heard anybody talking about it, I think, basically since, since we published these awards back in January. I mean, is that a thing? Is something that is on board Game Arena or... Yeah, other platforms are available, um, and takes twenty minutes to play. Say, is that more likely to get more votes if it's just come out, just because it's so accessible? It's, it's so almost you, the, the, the anti mage night. Well, for, for in, in the solo games, possibly um, for, for this, because we were going for you know, games published in 2019, 2020, There wasn't as mm. much of that because BGA wasn't at that point mostly doing very new games. Mm. Uh, Looking at the dates on people's choice solo games, I, I think you're, you're right. Earlier, it, it takes a year or two before enough people are enthusiastic enough about it yeah. to get it in, get it high into the list. Yeah, and I think then, yeah, if something gets expansions and new releases, then that will help keep it up there and keep people's interest. If it finds its way into the top ten, maybe the top twenty, then again that will sort of perpetuate an interest with people that are just coming into the hobby and like we we're talking about earlier, coming to the top one hundred list to say, Oh, these are the good solo games. That's that keeps sense. people interested in it and aware of the game and new people coming in to vote for it. Um whereas otherwise sort of four to five years is probably the tops for most of them before they slip out. Yeah, I think that, look, looking at the list, I think that's fair. Um, it'll be interesting to see how you know think, things like Feast Road and Seventh Continent um, that haven't had a lot of yeah. updating since last year do this time round. Yeah, I mean Feast Road is one that you know, has had an expansion since it came out. Um, is getting another expansion um, okay. probably next year, I think now. Um, but yeah, that's sort of edging towards perennial, I suppose. Just in that top twenty rather than top ten. Hmm. And Scythe. I think they've stopped publishing stuff for Scythe. Yeah. I they think. have, yeah. So yeah. maybe that's one that will start to, maybe not this year, but maybe in future years will start to slide a bit. I don't know. That was one I went because it's I think it's generally been my top one, my mm. top vote. Um, so yeah, it was one that I was very interested to see when I yeah. and had a look. And I remember when that was one that people said, "Oh, is it going to knock Mage Knight off yeah. the top spot?" Yeah, <laughs> I was one of those people. I didn't, I didn't understand. Well, I still don't understand the appeal of Mage Knight. <laughs> <laughs> 
But then you haven't spent hours and hours of your life invested into learning it. But maybe if you had, then you'd want to keep it there as number one. I have spent hours and hours invested into trying to learn it. Maybe not the many, many more hours and hours that people who actually enjoy it have. I did give it a shot. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost a lifestyle game in a different way to how the term's commonly used, doesn't it? You've got to dedicate time to, to learn it and then to play it because it's not, a, it's not a quick game. Yeah, and then when you get it back out again, you have to dedicate time to learn it, to relearn it. All over it. again. <laughs> I, I will admit that that happens with me with leaving Earth as well. Um, there, there are subtleties around the edges that I don't remember how this worked last time. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely same. But I remember the enjoyment of it, mm, which yeah. helps me get over the, oh yeah, I have to relearn some of the subtleties. So having said that we're not going to, none of us are likely to be voting in this year's <laughs> top 100. <laughs> are, are any of us likely to be looking at it when it's published? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Especially now you've reminded me it exists. That it exists. So... <laughs> So if we're all looking at it, why are we looking at it? Because we've said it's probably most useful for people that are new to the hobby, and none of us are. Well, as you were saying earlier, I suspect I'm going to be looking at people's individual lists to find mm -hmm. people who generally like the same sort of game that I do. Um, Things the, the about list... space with maths. <laughs> 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 there are games I like that, that aren't about space. Um, I'm I'll think of one too. <laughs> frantically looking around his room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, just as uh, I know, Lee, you've said in the past that set in space puts you off a game before you know mm. anything else about it. For, yeah. for me, generic fantasy setting often does the same thing. So yeah, exactly. Just, we, we all have these things. Just a personal taste thing, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I'm interested to see... Uh, what else is going to go up there? Is Spirit Island still going to be number one? I don't care about this, but you know, I, I don't really get. I don't really do the sports fan thing either. But it's it's mildly it's it's fun to watch people either I, caring or pretending to care. I think. Well, I, I hope most people are pretending to care, aren't they? <laughs> I hope so. I'd find it very strange if they're sat at their computers with their Spirit Island flag or their Mage Knight T-shirt. Sometimes some of the comments you do wonder. So. <laughs> True, there are some very strange people in the world. Yeah. Not saying that all Mage Knight fans are very strange people. No comment? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, have, I haven't tried it, you know, maybe one day. I don't know. We've done a bit of Mage Knight bashing. It is a very solid, good game, although I do think that it wouldn't get a mainstream publication if it was to come out now. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just my personal taste. I don't think it's a bad game. I think it's no. not a game for me. <laughs> yeah, I think there's been a general shift in um, the sort of thing that gets published. Even a heavy game these days tends to be something you can grasp the basics of immediately and do yeah. at least something. Yeah, I think now it would probably be far streamlined from what it is, or at the very least it would be a, an obscure Kickstarter game that some people were very obsessed about. Look at all the moving parts. Keep That's fingers it. clear. Yeah, it's interesting. Also, just, just looking down the list of it to see Renegade at number 28, which uh, I think was still in print in 2019, not in 2020 because the whole uh, company getting bought out thing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. 
It's, it's an enjoyable game, but this, this, these are people who've been hanging on to their copies and, can't, and no new ones. Yeah. Seventh Continent. I'm surprised that's been hanging around the, the top 20. I seem to remember when that came out, everybody was obsessed with it. And then quite quickly, people were very annoyed with it. <laughs> yeah, not when I've tried. So. No, me neither. And I've, I've certainly heard people talking about Nemo's War either as this thing is a masterpiece of strategy or this thing is just dice luck. And presumably they're not both right. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I suppose that's um, a top 100 list like this is going to throw up things like that that people either love or hate. Isn't it? If enough people love it, it doesn't matter that most people think it's a, it's an okay or a good game. That's probably going to get fewer votes. Mm. But uh, if you come over to personal top tens, I, I always say that, well, no, I just can't do a personal top ten because tomorrow it will be different. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I'll do one and that doesn't mean that it's the same one I'm going to do tomorrow. Yeah, I'm slightly embarrassed about how much time I did spend perfecting the order of my lists. When Go I on, did tell me you've got spreadsheets with formulas and... <laughs> <laughs> Why would you call me out like that? <laughs> I think I think it was Morton Pedersen had a. Mm-hmm. I think he, he, he does an annual competition a, around it. But he's also got a formula. I think it was him, and I think I took his mm. formula and put it in my spreadsheet, and it's been very helpful. I've been very grateful for it. How, how to put together a BGG rating that will be consistent? So yeah, mm. so it works out. So I used it as I worked out. I got. Here's the the order based on his formula, and then I rearranged from that, which was much easier than just starting from a blank. Here's the games I've played, <laughs> and then and yeah, I I like things to be just right, and so um, I spent quite a bit of time shifting things around. What's number two? Is it but number two or things, number three? <laughs> can can things be just a, just no, right? I mean, it's, it, it's exactly, all subjective. They can't be. And I mean, certainly that's that's my feeling. If I'm comparing a game, like we both said, we would only vote for games we played this year. Yeah. But if I played a game yesterday and I've, uh, something else I really love, but I played it in January, uh, can I really compare them? But, and but that's before is, that's yeah. before you get to differences of mechanisms and play length and everything else. Absolutely. So I, I say I need it to be perfect. Obviously, I I fully understand that the whole thing is completely subjective mm. and cannot be perfect and so yeah the whole thing is not objectively this is yeah. the game it's a and that's on the, on the day on which i voted this is what i felt <laughs> that, that's something else is a sort of a myth to dispel around this isn't it the people that yeah. comment on the top 100 list every year that go oh this game isn't better than this game and they get really upset and you think well nobody said it was that the title of this is people's favorite games yeah nobody said it was a an objectively better game, if there is such a thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> mind, mind you, you get that with all sorts of things. I, I remember reading camera forums where one of the standard problems was people would come into the forum for a particular camera and say, mm-hmm. I just bought this. Essentially, reassure me that I made the right decision. <laughs> you usually dressed up in something or But yeah, they, they would get very, very yeah. uh, edgy if somebody said, well, it's not particularly great for this, but it's good for that. Because they, they, yeah. they want it to be perfect because they've spent all this money on it. 
Yeah. No. That, that's the one that always gets me is when people come, this is nothing but a popularity contest. You know, that's exactly what it is. It says that in the title. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, bless. <laughs> people. <laughs> well, I, I know somebody who complained about um, uh, one, one of my favourite film reviewers being terribly biased and not at all objective. And we eventually came to so, somebody in the comments put, OK, here's an objective review of this film. It has 146,000 frames in 16 <laughs> by 9 ratio. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so top whatever lists might be of some use, might be of some interest. They're Is fun. that our, our general fun. feelings about them? <laughs> I, I think they're fun and... Yeah, I guess I'm nosy and like to know what people, what other people like. But yeah, and, and, and mainly just get upset at people liking Mage Knight. No, I don't get upset at people <laughs> liking Mage Knight. People are very welcome to like Mage Knight, but people are not allowed to expect me to like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they they can't help it; they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, much more useful with context, I think. Yeah. Yeah, if, if 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 I've already worked out your correlation with other games that I already have opinions on, then I can make much more sense of your opinions of these other games. That makes sense. That's good because yeah. it didn't didn't come out making sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Vicky was just being polite, Roger. <laughs> I thought it made sense. Maybe maybe I drifted off and heard <laughs> Not... something completely know. different that made yeah. sense to you. <laughs> now I'm confused. Thank you, Joel. Yeah, so if you uh, <laughs> if you are interested in People's Choice Top 100 and the One Player Guild, votes are happening now. Um, the the aggregate list, I imagine, is already in existence. If you want to look at people's own top twenty lists as they publish them, the final list is normally published these days, end of November, beginning of December. I think it said that voting ends on the thirty first of October, and the final list is supposed to come out. In the next week or two or so, but I may right. be mistaken about that. Yeah, maybe November's right. I think that was one yeah. reason for moving it earlier, wasn't it? So people had time to yeah. buy Christmas presents or something. <laughs> that seems sensible, and I did listen. <laughs> <laughs> in any well, case, obviously, everybody who's listening to this does it on release day, so you've got plenty of time left to vote. Absolutely, yeah, and I'm sure we've Roger put in the links to all the other awards that we mentioned, and probably to a load of other things we mentioned that I can't even think of right now. Ah, <laughs> uh, the tireless editing process. I don't know how you do it, Roger. Honestly. <laughs> wow. Uh, Vicky, thanks very much for joining us. It's been nice having you on. We both, Roger and I, yeah. both wanted to invite you on since we started, really. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's been fun. Good. And I hope to have you back cool. again sometime. Cool, I guess. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see whether you actually mean that. <laughs> or you're just being polite. Time will tell. Yes, and polite. Has, has she gone yet, Roger? <laughs> hiding in the corner here. <laughs> right, thanks very much. Okay, well, thanks very much for joining us yet again. 
If, if indeed you're still listening at this point. Uh, we'll probably be back next month with uh, yet more games and yet less time to play them in. 